So it is great to be with you this morning. Uh, we are not going to find ourselves in James this morning. I know, I know. I've already been asked uh, by several people, and uh, so we are not, I think I might refer to James one time, but we are not going to find ourselves in James. So over the past uh, at least weeks, um, if not months, God has been bringing to my mind and to my focus a certain idea, concept, and maybe a struggle that has been, that I'm aware of. And so I really want to uh, talk about that this morning and open up God's Word, and hopefully this will be a challenge to you, uh, maybe encouragement, but I think it's going to be more of a challenge and evaluation of where you are at in your life. And uh, certainly this has been a help to me, and hopefully it will be a help to you this morning as we want to be able to sing and mean it, Jesus is Lord, and all to Him I surrender. So I'm going to look at several passages. This is going to be more of a topical message than an expository like we're used to. But go ahead and turn to Galatians 4. We're going to start in that passage. We'll spend just a little bit of time there. And uh, I'll probably jump around and, and hit a few passages here and there. You're not going to need to turn to them. I'll probably go through some of them a little quicker than what you'll have time to turn to or scroll to. You're a little faster on your phone if you're doing that. But let's start in Galatians 4. So reading in verse 1, it starts with, I mean that the heir. Well, we're kind of jumping into a thought here. Then what do we mean by, why does he start with I mean that? Well, if we go back to Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul here is writing this. And basically to sum up Galatians 3, we could put it in this sort of sentence. He's communicating to this church at Galatia. The law brings a curse. This is Galatians 3. The law brings a curse, but Christ has redeemed us. So then we begin in Galatians 4, verse 1. I mean that, so the fact that Christ has redeemed us, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. All right, so what are we talking about here about this child? All right, so let's take, for instance, picture maybe a two, three, four, five, six-year-old child that whose father owns a lot of things, and he at some appointed time is going to get that inheritance of all that he owns, but at this point in time, he's not really even of the age to be able to manage all these things. So he has probably similar rights to well, a slave as far as he has his needs taken care of, but he doesn't really have ownership of all of that as he's an heir to. All right, so that's what he's referring to here. We continue on. Though he is the owner of everything, verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Does that make sense, those first two verses? Continuing on, Paul says, in the same way, we also, when we were children. Okay, this is referring to when we were children here. Again, a young age. This is talking about in our spiritual journey. This is before we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to here, this phrase, when we were children, before we were saved, before we were redeemed. Continuing on. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, much in that phrase, but again, we're referring to here this phrase, elementary principles of the world. Think of, if I use the word element, uh, it's very uh, a low base, low ranking. Think of the alphabet. If I was to take the letter R, by itself, it doesn't really have much worth or value, but when we put it together with other letters, we can form and give something value. Really in the context here, and we'll read this again a couple of places uh, later as well, it's referring to forms of tradition, traditions of religion, these elementary principles of the world. So here he's talking to his church at Galatia. When we were children, we were enslaved to these elementary principles of the world. We continue on. But when the fullness of time had come, I'm reading in verse 4, here's the gospel. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here this appointed time has come, the gospel message, God sent His only Son to redeem. And at that point in time where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you take full inheritance. And then verse 7, what's the result? So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Does that little section make sense? Was I clear on that, kind of what we're communicating? All right. 
So we're no longer slaves. And again, Paul is writing to this church, these brothers and sisters in Galatia. You're no longer slaves, but free. We now have access to this inheritance. We're an heir of God. And what inheritance that is. We pick up in verse 8, Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So before, before, we were enslaved to those things that are not God's little g, right? But now, he continues on, verse 9, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how, here's our phrase, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So here he's challenging these Galatians. You guys had this freedom in Christ. You were inherited. You have, you're an heir to God and all the inheritance that goes along with that. And then you want to turn your back again to the weak and worthless things of this world. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And basically what he's just talking about is Paul saying, you're putting yourself back under the law. Remember, the law is a curse. Christ has redeemed you. You freed you from that. And here the Galatians are putting themselves back under the law and the traditions of man. And then verse 11, what a sad state. Paul's like, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And if we were to continue the rest of that chapter, we won't this morning for sake of time, you would see just Paul's urging with him, Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been made free from the law, free from these weak and worthless things of this world. Why are you going back to those things? As I read this, and then I actually went to Romans 9, and I went to and I'm considering some passages in Ephesians, I thought back to my own salvation experience in 1978. I was a five-year-old boy. And God in His mercy, and maybe you go back to your point of salvation, that appointed time, but God in His mercy allowed me, I remember I'm five, allowed me to open my eyes to understand the truth of the gospel. I don't remember a lot really around that age, especially younger, but I can vividly remember, for whatever reason, because this was an amazing moment, is I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sitting, we, we, had, we were having a little family devotion time. We had a fire going. And I was, I knelt and prayed with my dad as I prayed uh, and asked the Lord to save me and be my Lord and Savior. And I, I knelt at this brown and orange paisley couch. Anybody picture that? It might be worth a lot today because things are, you know, goes around, comes around here. I can picture this. And here as I prayed, I wasn't saved out of a life of drugs and alcohol and major wickedness, but my life and future drastically changed in that moment. In fact, the Holy Spirit came in, God himself, part of the Trinity, came in and dwelt within me. I went from spiritually dead to alive in Christ, a slave, now I'm free. The wrath of God was no longer pointed in my direction. In fact, when God looks down and sees me through the blood of the cross of Christ. He sees me as perfect and righteous. I don't even understand all that. My eternity was sealed. I became a child of God. I have hope. I have peace. And I was only five. By the way, I had no idea that all this was going on. And I continue to realize what I have in Christ. And as I'm contemplating, I'm literally reading these passages and going through this and and it hits me this overwhelming feeling of, God, if that is so amazing, and it is. I hope there's something inside of you that just is like, we got something. If that is so awesome and amazing as it is, then why, like the Galatians we just read here, do I go back to those weak and worthless things that have little value? Why do I put other things in my life first place? Why are sometimes things so much more exciting to me than my walk with God? Why is it so hard to live out the verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? You know, we were made to worship. We find this all throughout Scripture. In fact, if, if, if this is, by chance, if someone's first time they've been in church, maybe their entire life, 
you're worshiping something. We were, we were created in the image of God, and you are worshiping something. Now, we came this morning to worship God, but we were made to worship. And as we see this all throughout Scripture, I'm going to read several verses. You don't need to turn there. They'll be on the screen. We're going to see that this is a continual theme of worship in something. So we start here in Exodus 20. These will probably be familiar verses to many of you. Exodus 20, 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. I always think it's interesting that God made a law to have no other gods before me with an understanding that he is the only God. Why did he have to do that? Don't have any other gods before you. I know that there aren't any other gods, but you're going to make other gods anyways, even though they're not real gods. So I'm going to make this law to say, don't worship those gods, even though they don't exist. Does that seem crazy to you? Why? Because we are going to worship something. And he knows humanity, and we're going to create these other gods. Continue on. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. From the very beginning of humanity, we had a desire to worship things other than God himself. Isaiah 44, 17, similar to that. Here we go. And the rest of it he makes into a God, little g, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Why? Because we all have a bent to worship something. Here in both of those verses, we find in the Old Testament, the worshiping a carved image, okay, something made by hands. But idols is not just a concept in the Old Testament. In fact, the book of 1 John, there are 105 verses in the book of 1 John. And here in the book of 1 John, uh, he's talking to us about how we are supposed to walk as children of light, how Christ is our advocate. But he has six little words that he closes the entire book. Of all of the things that you could close a book to say, he says this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And all throughout Scripture, we see this idea of we're worshiping something other than God. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, here's us pausing. We read about idols and these carved images, and maybe you're picturing like I did when I was a kid, you know, a little Buddha and people bowing down in some hut or some village somewhere. Is that all we're talking about? So the Bible's clear that we should not have other gods and we shouldn't be worshiping these idols made by hands, but is there more to it? Let's look at two verses, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so we're talking more about idolatry. We're talking more than just carved images. Here, we particularly say covetousness is, covetousness is idolatry. What is that? desiring something that's not mine, maybe pursuing and having a passion. So where does idolatry begin? It begins with our thoughts and our desires. Another verse similar to that, Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, we have it again, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this is referring to really someone who has the pattern of their life is to partake in these things. So covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry begins with our desires. So what are we talking about this morning? Idolatry, idols. What is it in your life that you have elevated, like these Galatians here, we've been free. We went from a slave to being free. We are redeemed by Christ, but then we go back to these weak and worthless things. So on your sheet, if, you're, if you follow along on that, we're getting to that. Number one, what is idolatry. I think you have this to blank this next one as well. Idolatry, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, emotions, and affections more than God. Now, I would venture to say that I think most of you in here probably are aware of the story of Jonah, right? So Jonah was a prophet. God is going to, in the Old Testament, God is going to communicate some message to Jonah and Jonah's whole job is to take that message and communicate that to the appropriate people that he is supposed to. So here we have the story of Jonah. God says, Jonah, I would like you to go 
to these horrible, terrible people, the Ninevites, and I want you to tell them that they are wicked and judgment is coming their way unless they repent. That sounds fun, huh? So Jonah has some idea of what these people in Nineveh were like, and Jonah said, that is a horrible idea. I am going to do something different than that. So Jonah says, Nineveh is this way, I'm going this way, and so he disobeys God, and he says, I'm going to get on a boat, and if you know the story, right, he's in a boat, the storm comes, Jonah's like, yeah, that storm's my problem, throw me overboard, he gets eaten by fish, and after three days he finds it, fine, I'll go and tell, I'll go to Nineveh and communicate the message. What's the point of that story? We're talking about idolatry. What did Jonah love more than God? If, if you think about that, as I have, you know what he loved more than God, even the way that I told that? His own, I heard several things, my safety, my security, my comfort. That sounds like a horrible idea. They could possibly, I've heard about these guys. They're not going to take this message very well, and I could be in big trouble, all right? Now, we can say for sure, but we peel back that layer, I think we see Jonah has an idolatry problem. In fact, are you ever disobedient in what God asks you to do because you are more interested in protecting your idols than obeying God? Matthew Henry puts it this way. If we make an idol of any creature, wealth, pleasure, or honor, if we place our happiness in it and promise ourselves the comfort and satisfaction in it which are to be had in God only, if we make it our joy and love, our hope and confidence, we shall find it a cistern which we take a great deal of pains to hew out and fill. And at best it will hold but a little water and that dead and flat, and soon corrupting and becoming nauseous. Have you ever had a desire for something that it was just so great, and it may not have been a bad thing, but you just had this desire for this thing, and all of your time, energy, thoughts went into pursuing this, and then you got it, and it really didn't satisfy you. Has it ever happened? Is that just me? And it just doesn't, literally is what he's talking about. We, we will take this sister and we will take great deal of pains to hew out and fill and after a while it really doesn't really hold that much water anyways. So what is idolatry? An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, emotions, and affections more than God, point number two. So what are some forms of idolatry? I think we could give several here, but again, I try, my goal is to be shorter than Jeff, and so we're going to move things along, and I'm not going to have a bunch of points, all right? Uh, so I'm just going to give two, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will kind of fill in the gaps of things that I don't mention and bring to your mind. So I'm going to give two forms of idolatry and know that we could give others. So letter A, worshiping God, but one of my own making. Worshiping God, but one of my own making. At first thought, you may be like, what does that mean? I don't even know what you mean by that. Hear me out. R.C. Sproul gives a great quote. I don't actually think this will be on the screen because I add this in later. But a God, are you with me? A God, little g. A God who is all love, all grace, and all mercy. You with me? A God, little g, who is all love, all grace, and all mercy. That sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Love. Just all love. Can't we just love everybody? We love grace. In fact, we love grace. Now, we don't like to give grace out as much, but we love it when it's given to us. And mercy, just show mercy. That sounds like a great God. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, but no sovereignty, no holiness. Oh, you mean you don't, we can't do that? You don't accept that? No holiness. No wrath. We don't like a God, a God of wrath. A God who's all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no holiness, no wrath. You know what that is? It's an idol. Psalm 50, 21 says, You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Here's God speaking. These things you have done. That sounds pretty bad. All right. These things you have done, and I've been silent. 
But you raise it to a level and then it says, you thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Why? Because God is not like us. John MacArthur puts this verse this way. He puts it, he says, contemporary Christianity has lowered God to its level, robbing Him of majesty and holiness, and that is as idolatrous as worshiping a rock. Examine your own life here. Is this true of us? Is this true of me? Have we created a different God in our mind than what we find in the Bible? I think the prosperity gospel has done this exact same thing. God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and have all these things, and, and He wants to bless your life, and He wants you to be happy. And that sounds good, but if all of those things, if that's all that God wants, then the Apostle Paul really kind of blew the whole Christian life thing, right? Why? Because we, we want this certain image of God, and this is what we make Him to be, but we just said God is a God of wrath. That is true. Let me give you a couple examples. Have you ever gotten mad at God because He brought hardship or trials in your life? God, if you say, I'm, I'm trying to serve you. If you say that you love me, why would you let this happen to me? Well, maybe because you have a wrong view of, of God. Maybe we forgot, as it says in James, that the trying of your faith works patience and builds character and, be, and causes us to be more Christ-like. The Bible tells us that after purging and after going through fire, we shall come forth as gold. That is God's process. This, this idea came to my mind even with a situation that happened this past week. Some of you are aware of this, but there are missionary friends of ours actually, that we've taken uh, on support here at Graceview that are missionaries to a very difficult part of the world. And their youngest child was getting very sick. And they were debating, like, do we take him to the hospital? Do we not? And, and what's the time of this? And, and finally they decide, okay, we need to take him to the hospital. Why is that a tough decision? Because it's not just down the road. So they have to travel to this port where they get on a boat, and they travel for an hour on this boat. Okay? And, then, and the whole time, they're, they're wondering if their son is going to live and make it to the hospital. They get to the, the other side. Uh, after this hour-long boat ride, they get in a taxi, and for 30 minutes they drive to, finally they get to a hospital after about two-hour process of get to a hospital where they can get care that is needed. And the doctor uh, told them that you, you had probably another hour or two, and he would not have, have lived. Thankfully, he's doing much better, and, and, and God is blessing there. The point is this. I heard that, and my first reaction is, are you kidding me, God? Is this how you treat your... I mean, look, I, I, I know some of you do this too. Don't look at me like I'm the only bad one here. But I'm strong like, man, this is, here's a family that is serving you across the world. I mean, how much do these people have to... You know why? Because my thoughts are not God's thoughts. And His ways are so far above my ways. And I look at these little circumstances. I have no idea what God is doing. But oftentimes I create an ima in my imagination of what God should be like. And to worship that God is idolatry. Be careful that we are not creating a God in our imagination that is different than who He truly is. A.W. Tozer wrote this, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Hosea 6.6 6 says, and God is speaking here, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God, knowing who God is, rather than burnt offerings. We all are worshiping something. Who are you or what are you worshiping? Do you have an accurate understanding of God, the knowledge of God, and knowing who we are worshiping, who we sang about this morning? Do you have a right picture of God? Anything less is idolatry. Letter B, placing God's blessings 
above my love for God. Placing God's blessings above my love for God. 2 Kings 18 gives us this passage of Scripture. Now read starting in verse 1. 2 Kings 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. All right, so Hezekiah becomes king. He's 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. Are we ready? And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. So what did he do? He removed, verse 4, the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. So what's taking place in here? All right, so with the Israelites, we know that they struggled with idol worship throughout their time. But here specifically, Hezekiah comes and he breaks down these high places and the pillars cut down the Asherah. What are we talking about? The nation of Israel had, had elevated into these high places where they were worshiping, and one of those things that they were worshiping was this Asherah. So after the goddess of Asherah, they had created a wooden image that they were worshiping. Here Hezekiah breaks down, he removed the high places, and one of those things was the Asherah. The next thing, the next part, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They were worshiping this bronze serpent that Moses had made. Well, what is the bronze serpent that Moses had made? Well, let's go back to Numbers. You don't have to turn there. So what happened in Numbers? Well, if you know anything about the children of Israel, they were really good at lots of things, but they were really good at complaining, okay? So here they are in this moment, all right, they're coming out of Egypt, and God has provided for them, but they didn't like exactly how God provided us, so they're complaining. So what does God do? In our sin, God, in His love, oftentimes sends judgment. So here the nation of Israel, they are complaining. And so God sends some poisonous snakes, and the snakes are biting the Israelites, and they are dying. But what always accompanies God's judgment? God's mercy and grace. So what does he provide in this, in this situation? God brought the judgment of the snakes, but he tells Moses, all right, I'm going to show my mercy as well. I can't just let this go, so I'm bringing judgment, but I'm going to provide a way for escape. Does that sound familiar? And so in his mercy, he says, Moses, I want you to get a pole, and I want you to put a brass serpent around that. I want you to stick it here, and if they come and look on this and have enough faith to believe that this will heal them, then they will be healed and they won't die of these poisonous snakes. So that's the story. Now, is that, is that a pretty, that relic of that pole with the brass serpent, would that be a pretty cool thing and representation for the a nation of Israel? Yeah, so much so that what do they do with it? They put it in a high place and they started doing what? Worshiping it. So it was, it was a blessing from God, something that actually communicated the gospel. Do you know what communicates the gospel in the same way in Anderson? Ambulances. Did you know that? Did you know that on an ambulance they have a pole with a snake around it? And every time you see an ambulance, you say, that thing is communicating the gospel. Why? Because God poured out his wrath because we were born into sin and God's judgment and wrath was headed your way, but God provided a way of escape through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, here's what happened in that same passage, all right? So God provides, and what has the nation of Israel done? They've elevated this thing into a high place, and here the nation of Israel was worshiping. We don't worship that. We worship God. So here Hezekiah breaks down these high places. He breaks down this brass serpent. John Kelvin, okay, and again, the point is, we take good things oftentimes and we worship those things and make those things idols just like this example here of the nation of Israel. In fact, I think oftentimes we could think of sin a lot of times as idols, but some of us don't fall into deep sin like that. You know, if Satan could just say, you know what, if I could get you distracted by these blessings from God and take your focus and love away from God, you're, just, you're not effective. John Calvin puts it this way, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, because a lot of times we want things that are good, 
but that we want it too much. So what is in your life that can be seen as a blessing from God that you have turned into an idol? Now, there is no way possible I can give a list of all the different idols that we could potentially have this morning. I'm going to just mention a few. I think you have a blank to write those down. If, if, if the Holy Spirit brings different idols to your mind, write those down, okay? The first one I had written down is wealth and security. Wealth and security. We live in a rich country. God has blessed the United States of America. And compared to the world standards, we're all wealthy no matter where you're standing here this morning. But oftentimes, I think we can put our security in our wealth. And maybe it's someone that um, God has blessed you uh, with a good job that brings a lot of income, or maybe just the ability to make money, and your passion and love and pursuit is to gain more and more wealth. In fact, your security is less in God, and your security is in your wealth and your finances. Has that accumulating wealth become an idol or just the, the, the ability to make money? Has that become an idol in your life? The second one, I was thinking of our, our relationships. Young people, do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you are now involved with that has become so important to you that you neglect your time with the Lord? Your love for God has waned because you're so interested in this person. The relationship has caused you to lessen your love for God, and this person has become an idol. Talking about Mother's Day. I, th I think for moms, I think sometimes your kids can become an idol in your life in everything you do. And again, they can be all-consuming. But everything you do, and it becomes your identity and security, and your kids and your family become an idol. This probably doesn't fit under this category specifically, but I was even thinking, like, relationships we have on social media, then I'm getting the whole thing, like, our phones could be idols, your social media accounts could be idols, or your, how you present yourself on social media, which is really, you know, it's not really the reality, but that has become really an idol, and I have to constantly let everybody know what I'm doing in those relationships that are a lot of times fake. Anyways, has that, that whole idea, has that become an idol? A third one, sports. I know we have a lot of sports fanatics in here. Have you elevated sports? Would it be easier... For you, and I don't want anybody to, well, no, I, don't, I was going to say I don't want anybody to feel guilty, but that's not necessarily true. <laughs> Would you skip church much quicker and easier than you would miss your favorite team's ball game? Would you, don't be mad at me, men, would you skip out on a men's Saturday morning prayer breakfast because your sports team was playing? That's pretty early, so there's probably not too many sports teams, but maybe other things. Maybe it's your kids' involvement in sports. Have those been elevated to a thing where, you know what, I, I'll easily forgo my church activities or my time with God, and this has become an, another one, hobbies. Okay, we can list all sorts of things in this, under this category. Fishing, biking, golf, hunting. I threw in shopping there because I was thinking, I don't know, what, what are idols for ladies? I don't, I don't know. Getting your nails done. Uh, oh, I have all the men whispering things. Okay, don't do that. All right. <laughs> what is it in your life? So I mentioned the Saturday morning prayer breakfast. I'm not sure if, if he's here. I'm not seeing him right now. But So a week ago, we had men's prayer breakfast. Thank you, men, who came to that. So 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning, first Saturday of every month. Love to have you. But a week ago, we had our men's prayer breakfast, and I was talking to one of the guys, and he was saying, yeah, I actually got up, and I was getting ready to go fishing and I was reminded that God brought to my mind about the men's prayer breakfast. And here I had, to, I had this dilemma, like, uh, do I go to the prayer breakfast? I was all excited about fishing. He came to the prayer breakfast, by the way. I won't tell you who it is. But that would be easy to say, you know what? Eh, I like fishing. What? That doesn't, is fishing a good thing? Sure. I don't really like fishing, so it doesn't do anything for me. So that's why I mentioned it, because it's not one of my idols. All right. But what, is, what, what, is, what will you set so easily aside to chase after this? In fact, since I'm on that line of Saturday morning prayer time, what if a guy fishing wasn't his thing and he really didn't have anything going on? But he's like, you know, I, just the idea of praying 
in front of some guys and the potential of praying in a group. I might have to pray out loud. I'm not really, ready for this, comfortable with that. Okay? Is comfort an idol in your life? So I mentioned comfort. Do idols have to only be a person or a thing, or could it be an emotion, an idea, a feeling? I want to give you two. The first one I just mentioned, comfort. I will often choose to do things or not do things based on if I feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And if I based that on this morning, I would not be standing up here, okay? If you knew me as a kid, this is an act of God, all right? But do we choose or not choose things based upon how comfortable we are? Let me give you some examples. Do I share my faith with the guy at the gas station that I struck up a conversation with that I talk about Christianity, or is that out of my comfort zone? I'm not going to pray in public. I won't teach a Sunday school class or lead a Bible study. I'm not going to go across and talk to my neighbor and invite him to church or share my faith with that coworker because it's uncomfortable. Maybe here this morning, you've, the Holy Spirit's been nudging you. Hey, go talk to that new person that came to Graceview this morning or the last couple of weeks, but that's out of your comfort zone. I don't feel comfortable doing that. I'm not good at talking. You might have an idolatry problem of comfort. Here's another one. Image. An idol of your image is how you are viewed by others. Does that dominate your decisions and actions? Are you controlled by what people say or how they will react to you? You being liked by others, is that elevated above your love for God? Now, I'm going to explain it this way, this, this idea of image, and I hope this will come across in, in the right way, all right? So since Jeff's not here, I'm going to use him as an example. Are you with me? Erica, don't, don't tell him. All right. So we all know that we are uh, very privileged and blessed to be able to listen to Jeff preach the Word of God most every Sunday morning. God has given him a unique ability to rightly divide the Word of God, right? Amen? All right? But let's say, which, which happens. Okay? I've told him, and, we, and, and many of you say, man, that was, that was great. Thank you for sharing God's Word this morning. Because he truly has, listen, I've been in a hand, lots of churches, and I've heard, again, I was saved at five, okay? I've heard lots of messages. We are very privileged, and many of you have expressed that to him. So let's just say that this happens, okay? Let's say Jeff, who is human, and he's getting all of these comments and all of these praises. What could start to seep into Jeff's heart? Pride. All right, so let, let's imagine a scenario where, okay, again, we're talking about good things, right? Preaching God's word, that's a pretty good thing. But let's say Jeff is receiving all these comments, and he's human, and he's battling this flesh, just like, man, I, I really like that, I, and I really, and all of a sudden, before when he would pre prepare, he's just like, man, God, what do you have me for me today? Just open your word, and, and maybe the Spirit, open up this passage, and he tells us that all the time, open up this passage so I can communicate the truth of God's word. But what happens if all of these things we're saying and these comments kind of caused him to almost change his motivation and his thinking. And like, man, I, I can't let these people down, all these comps. I don't want that to change. And, and man, I can put more time and more preparation at, at the neglect of his family, at relationship with Deanna, at the expense of other responsibilities in the church and, and his own Bible reading and prayer time. And he's focusing so much on preparation because I got to deliver because I want the pray. Is, is it Here's the point. Not that that's happening. Is it possible that even preaching God's word could become an idol? I, I think so. What's the title of the message? I haven't even said it yet. The subtleties of idolatry. That's why I'm not, I'm not spending a lot of time on different sins that are idols in our life. That may be a problem for some of us in here, but I think the vast majority of us in here, we have subtle things 
that are taking root in our heart and we are elevating them above our love for God. And a lot of those things are good things, blessings from God. Paul Tripp says, a desire for a good thing becomes a desire for a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. Again, we can't possibly list all the idols here this morning. So I honestly, I pray that the Holy Spirit will cause conviction where it needs to be. And what are those idols in your life that need to be dealt with this morning? So what's the solution? What's the solution? Number three, I'm going to go through quick. All right, my time is passing. Identifying the idols of my heart. Stay with me. Identifying the idols of my heart, number three. Now, I'm going to ask three questions, and on your sheet you have three questions, but these are three different questions, not those three questions. So hang on just a second. So if you're going to write anything, just kind of write it separate. Here's three questions to ask yourself. Remember, identifying the idols of my heart. So if God has not brought something to your mind yet, maybe some of these questions and asking these might, might prompt something. First one, how do you spend your time, money, and where do you give your affections? What do you constantly think about? I know I've had a handful of quotes. I've got another one here this morning. Tim Keller put it this way, and I, I love this. The true God, little g, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What is it for you? There's nothing else demanding your attention. What do your thoughts go to? And has that become an idol? Okay, a second question. When or where is there chaos in your life? And hang with me. This is good. When or where is there chaos in your life? When someone gets angry or upset, whether it's at home, maybe in public, watch out. One of their idols is being threatened. Now, you see someone who gets angry. If we were to peel back away the layers of what is revealed behind that anger, you know what you'd find? Whatever they're trying to protect. What do you get angry about? What is so important that you will get angry at? Question number three. What do you get anxious or most worried about? All right, right, right now, I want everybody to think, what causes you the most anxiety. Think about it. What causes you the most anxiety? What do you worry about the most? You know the answer? Your idols. What is it for you? Let me ask you three other questions. Pertaining to being anxious or worried, you start thinking, what if I don't get it? What if I lose it? Whatever that it is for you. What if I don't have enough of it? Instead, we should be praying, God, test me to see if there is any anxious thought in me. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the Bible says, don't be anxious for anything. Is that As a believer, someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, is it possible to live an anxious-free life? Is that possible? Yes, under the power of the Holy Spirit. But we better rid ourselves of those idols. So here's your three questions on your sheet. I got you them now. Ask these questions. Am I, do you have idols? Identify that. Am I, asking it from your perspective, am I willing to sin to get it? Number two, am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose it? And number three, do I run to it for comfort instead of God? Now, I'm going to read a list. And whatever here this morning, if God has brought any thing or person or emotion that you have that has become, if there's anything like that in your life that God has brought to the forefront of your mind, I want you to think of that thing or person as I read this list. You ready? You'll sacrifice for it. You'll spend a lot of time on it. 
You'll spend a lot of money on it. You'll constantly talk about it. You'll protect and defend it. You'll perfect it. You'll consistently think about it. You worry about it. You'll get angry when someone blocks you from it. You'll build your schedule around it. If you were thinking of a particular idol, one or two or more of those that I just read would probably fit that. You're like, yep, I'll sacrifice for that. I'll build my schedule around that. Okay, so did you have the feelings that you had when you were thinking about that? Okay, now I'm going to read that same list again. You with me? Completely change your line of thinking. Don't think about your idol at all. You ready? Think about your relationship with God. All right? So hone in on that, my relationship with God. You ready? You're thinking about God. You'll sacrifice for Him. You'll spend a lot of time with Him. You'll spend a lot of money on Him. You'll constantly talk about Him. You'll protect and defend Him. You'll consistently think about Him. You'll get angry when someone blocks you from Him. You'll build your schedule around Him. Now, you, you probably had, if you were like me, you had two completely different thinking and what that looked like. A guy who, or lady who's chasing after my idols, and then a guy who is just passionate about God. They are not the same. What would it look like if we, all of us got rid of all of our idols and we passionately pursued, and as we sang, He is Lord, what would that look like? I surrender all. Well, not all, all, mostly all, but there's a, that's what we're talking about this morning. What are those things that you are hanging on to that you have elevated above your love for God? So what do we do about this? Number four, I just gave some simple steps. Removing the idols of my heart. The first one there, letter A, admit, admit that there are idols in my heart that have taken root in my life. Please be willing to admit. To confess the idolatry to God this morning. Right now, say, God, man, you've brought something to my mind and this has become too important in my life and it has affected my relationship with God. Confess it this morning. See, commit to having a healthier and deeper walk with God. God, I don't want to neglect my Bible reading, my Bible time. I want to have that closet-type prayer with you. I don't want to neglect that time. Working on Scripture memory, whatever that may be, but have, I'm going to deepen my walk with God. And letter D, I think this is important to us uh, for us as well, but ask for someone to help keep you accountable. Maybe it's your husband, wife, a family member, a co-worker who's a Christian as well as you. Maybe it's a church member. Help someone keep you accountable. Listen, idolatry is a lifelong battle. And even this week, as I've been going through this, I told you that this message was for me this morning as I've been struggling for the last several weeks of things God has brought into my mind. So what is it in your life that the Holy Spirit has convicted you about today? And I'm going to end with reading 2 Kings 18. I don't know if you can find that on the screen again. Uh, verse 4 and 5. Actually, don't worry about it if you can't find it. That might mess you up. So Hezekiah, oh, thank you. Hezekiah, I alluded to this earlier. Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until the, those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. So here we have Hezekiah breaking. Remember, the nation of Israel put this blessing, a good thing from God, and put it in these high places. What idols have been elevated into those high places that have been placed above God? What idols this morning do you need to tear down in your life and put God back into His rightful position? As I was kind of reading this passage over this last, this last week, I was reminded of a song I hear, heard years ago. In fact, I haven't heard for years until I went this week and went back and listened to it. And it's based out of this passage in 2 Kings. So I'm going to do something very bold here this morning, and I want us to end, I'm going to sing a song, and I want this to be a prayer, our prayer back to God. So when you listen to the words, especially, literally the, the chorus is a prayer. 
And it may be true of our lives as God has brought things into our mind. So listen as I sing here this morning. In Israel's time, Jehovah God was God alone. But soon they worshipped heathen idols made of stone. The high place used to worship God, now mocks his holy name. He's no longer God alone, his people bring him shame. Help me break down the high place once reserved for you. Help me rebuild my altar and worship you anew. Help me cast out all thoughts that exalt above your own. Help me listen for your sweet voice so your will is always known. In my own life, I long for God to have first place. But soon my focus turned away from His dear face. My heart was once reserved for Him. But soon I went astray. He's no longer God alone. I am seeking my own way. Help me break down the high place once reserved for you. For your sweet voice, so your will is always known. May this be the prayer of our heart this morning. May we break down those things that God has elevated above Him. Let's close in prayer this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have done, that you have taken us from enslaved to free, from dead to alive. God, our only reaction to that ought to be to cast everything else aside and to keep you first place in our life, that may we be a church that elevates you above all else, that we can truly say, Jesus, you are Lord. You can take it all. All I want is you. God, may we go from this place this morning. What would our life look like if we ridded ourselves of all idols and lived our life with you first place? May that be true of each one of us in here this morning. As he asks these things in your name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.